We're in this series on discipleship, being disciples, and, and we're uh, in part three of this series, and we're, we're essentially asking the question, what does it mean to be spiritual, or what, what might it mean to grow spiritually, it will become, what would it mean to say someone is spiritually mature, and if you remember, we said we're using this language because most people are not comfortable saying, I'm religious, no one says I'm a really, really religious person, right, I love organized religion, people don't say that, but they do say, I'm, I'm, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. So, so what does it mean? What does it mean to be, to be spiritual and become spiritually mature? And we're asking this question in the context of those very famous, very short stories where Jesus first appears to his disciples and he says, come follow me. The ones that Matthew read, come follow me, and, and they, they drop their nets, they leave their boats, they leave their fathers, and they follow him. Uh, and and that, that scene where he goes up the mountain and then he comes down the mountainside and, and, and he calls his disciples and he selects 12, chooses 12 to be apostles. And so, so just to quickly recap where we've been, um, if you remember in week one, we considered what an honor it would be to have someone like Jesus come to you and say, come follow me. Because, because if they were fishermen, and the very fact that they were tax collectors, and they, that they were just doing other things, what that meant was that they, they hadn't made the cut. They hadn't been selected and chosen by the great rabbis. So their education had come to an end. That, that was it. They, they weren't the creme de la creme. They weren't the, 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 the top of the class, right? Um, and so we said it's a little bit like Oxford or the Ivy League coming to someone who dropped out of school years ago and saying, hey, we're going to offer you a place here. So there's a lot of grace in this invitation. Um, but, but by that, I mean... It's undeserved. That's what grace means. It's undeserved, unmerited, unearned. And it's the invitations offered to these disciples, these ragtag group of men, and, and to the, the prostitute, and to the tax collector, and to the Roman enemy soldiers and Turin, and, and to you and to me. And so hopefully that grace, that, that unmeritedness, right, can let us all breathe a little bit, because that will frame what it means for us to grow spiritually. Right? We, we can breathe easy because you and I, we don't have to earn our place here right? Don't have to do that. Then in week two, we, we looked at uh, how important it is for, to accumulate or grow in knowledge if we're going to grow spiritually. But, but it's not knowledge as in the Western approach, which is a download of information and cool, detached objectivity. Well, we're not talking about knowledge in, in those terms. Uh, it's more about sort of following someone and learning to imitate them and seeing what they see, loving what they love, valuing what they value. And, and look, here's, here's the thing. When we take up values, values are not something that you can pick up and put aside, try on for size, and then set aside at will, and pick up and put down when you feel like it. When you take up your values, these values get taken up into all of our instincts, right? And so it becomes so interwoven with who we are as human beings that they're virtually indistinguishable from each other. So, so, so that's, that's the kind of knowledge. When we talk about growing in knowledge, it's almost this thing that becomes an instinct. That kind of knowledge is, is what we're talking about. Okay, so that's where we've been. And what I want to do this morning is to go back through those same two passages with a fine tooth comb. Truth is, we could, we could do this all semester, right? We're not going to, but I just want to go back once more through these two passages yet again and just, just again, see what we can learn about Jesus' vision um, for, for our spiritual growth uh, from these two very short stories so if someone came to you and said, come follow me, we're back to that again, 
I think you would ask, I think you would ask, just out of sheer curiosity, oh yeah, where to? Right? It doesn't matter if you know them or you trust them, you're still going to ask that. You're going to say, where, where are we going? Not because you don't know them, not because you don't trust them, you trust them, but you just, you just want to know, right? Even me, who, who has no sense of direction whatsoever, I, I still want to know where I'm going, that's, you know, and that's, you know, punch it into the GPS. Actually, I just say, hey, Julia, how do we get here? And she just knows. She works way better than the GPS. Um, but, but you still want to know where you're going. And so when, when they come, Jesus comes to them and says, come follow me, it's not a generic, come follow me. And they're going, oh, yeah, where to? And he goes, I don't know, we'll just wherever the wind takes us. Come follow me and we will wander aimlessly together. Come follow me and we will follow wherever the road goes. And he doesn't do that. He has some, a very specific somewhere in mind. He has a specific destination. And he doesn't conceal it. He, he doesn't say, just trust me, okay? You're going to love it. Believe me, when we get there, you're going to really enjoy it. Just try, he doesn't lead them on this wild goose chase. He doesn't do that. He, he tells them. He satisfies their natural human curiosity, which is, which is very generous. And so um, there's any number of ways he could have finished that sentence, right? Come follow me, and, and what? I will make you a spiritually mature person. Come follow me, and I will make you a more loving kind of person. Come follow me, and I will make you a good and better kind of person. Come follow me, and, and there's he, any number of ways he could have finished that sentence, but he finishes it by saying, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men, or I will teach you to fish for, for people. That's the destination that they're heading out to. Here's the interesting thing. Not only is this Christ's goal for his disciples' spiritual growth, I will make you fishers of men, I will teach you to fish for people. Not only is that Christ's goal for his disciples' spiritual growth, but it is also his method for spiritual growth. His, his method, in other words, is the same as his goal, and his goal is the same as his method. And I want to explore that idea a little bit, and, and I want to begin doing that by making a comparison, which we've done before, but I think it's, it's a helpful comparison, which will help us see what Jesus is up to here. A comparison between a, a very sort of um, popular um, idea or a popular mantra in in the uh, contemporary western world and jesus maxim right so jesus maxim is come follow me and i'll make you fishers of men and and then and in this contemporary popular contemporary mantra in the western world certainly a rule for life a rule for living in the english-speaking world in the anglosphere is well as long as you're not hurting anyone right how, how often have you heard people say that or how often have you said it yourself i've said it myself plenty of times well you know as long as i'm not hurting anyone that's really all that matters that's that's all that that counts that's what's important uh it's it's a rule for life it, it's it's really the only way it's really the only way to uh, to live and what it does is that starts to encourage us to see ourselves as a sort of a collection of uh, atomized individuals living our lives quite separately from each other. Uh, and maybe they're like, well, that's fine by me. Leave me alone, Stephen. That's good. I'm happy being that way. But uh, let's, let's press on a little further. This is, this is actually why some philosophers have said uh, that modern Western culture is not a culture. It's not a culture. We've got civilization. We've got plumbers. We've got policemen. We've got doctors. We've got civilization. But that's not a culture. 
that it, a culture suggests that there is a, a, an, an overarching narrative which gathers up the arts, that then gathers up the people and binds us together. And as we're bound together and we find ourselves bound to each other, we find that we have a sense of responsibility to each other and for each other. And we have a sense of responsibility not only to us who are here right now, alive today, but, and this may seem really strange to us, but we've got a responsibility to the past, to our ancestors, the people who've gone before us. And then we've also got a responsibility to the future and what comes tomorrow and the generation and the generation after that. But our mantra, well, as long as I'm not hurting anyone, this is not a collective myth which gathers us and binds us to each other. It's the opposite of that. It's really just a very thinly disguised way of me unburdening myself of any responsibility whatsoever to humanity, past, present, and future. Well, as long as I'm not hurting anyone. Or I'll stay out of your way you stay out of mine. That's really another way of saying the same thing, isn't it? I'll stay out of your way if you stay out of mine. This is why I say this, this maxim, one of our highest values in the Western English-speaking world, actually shrinks our world to the point that if we keep saying it, we'll soon find other people actually getting in the way. Maybe tomorrow it will be a colleague. Maybe it will be a friend who gets in the way. Maybe it will be a husband or maybe it will be a wife. And at that point as long as I'm not hurting anyone, will quickly turn into me actually hurting someone. And uh, I'm, I'm watching this happen in a, about three different places right now and in very, what are supposed to be the closest relationships. And, and it's, it's dark to watch. Listen again to Jesus' invitation. Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus' definition of spiritual maturity and his method to help us grow spiritually turns us outward to a concern for the world, to a concern for the past and the people around us now and to the, what comes next. So I'll just stop here for a second and I'll just ask this question, who are you, how are you contending? Then never mind about the past, the present, the future and all of humanity, right? <laughs> maybe that's a big, a big place to start. Who, who are you, individual or maybe a few individuals, who are you contending for? Whose good are you contending for? Who are the other human beings who's flourishing you make yourself responsible for. Because I'm really good. I, I'm an expert at pursuing my own goals. I, I've, got, I've got career ambitions, believe it or not. I've got, I've got ideas of things I want to pursue and, and plans for myself and, and uh, financial goals and, and all the rest of it, right? I, I'm, I'm really good at making sure that I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that I'm flourishing and I'm contending for my own good. But, but the question I, Jesus makes me contend with here is who? Who? Who in your life are you contending for? Who's good? Who's flourishing are you responsible for and, and, and going to, to contend for? It's not that it all weighs on your shoulders, but, but you're, you're working for it, for their good and their flourishing. If no one comes to mind, then perhaps it's time for us to admit that what has us in its vice grip is the contemporary Western world's, especially the anglophonic right, mantra, well, as long as I'm not hurting anyone, that's really all that matters. Or, or you stay out of my way and I'll stay out of yours. Maybe that's actually the story that's got in its grip. And, and we may want to respond for the first time to Jesus' invitation. Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Um, okay, let's, let's move on to that, that, next, that next story. You know, the, 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 the second one that Matthew read for us. Um, Again, it's a very short story, but, but it says that Jesus went up the mountainside to pray. He spent the whole night, the whole night in prayer to God. 
When it was day, he called his disciples, he chose 12 of them and called them apostles. First of all, we notice that Jesus goes up the mountain on his own the whole night to pray. There's no one else with him, and he goes there to encounter God the Father, right? He goes up the mountain to pray. This is an echo, this is an echo of Moses going up Mount Sinai to pray and to encounter God. It's an echo of, of that. And then when Moses comes back down the mountain, he comes back to Israel. When Jesus comes back down the mountain, do you know what he does? He appoints 12 disciples, which is a reflection of the 12 tribes of Israel. But get this, at this point, when Jesus says this, there are no 12 tribes of Israel. They've disappeared. What do you mean they disappeared? Well, there was this massive invasion by the Assyrians, and then the Assyrians deported them and scattered them around the world, right? They, the Assyrians deported them. And during that invasion and deportation, the tribes got all mixed up. There were no tribes. They vanished. They disappeared. But in this moment, when Jesus appoints the 12, that part of Israel's story reappears. It reemerges right in front of them. And that story, as Jesus calls his disciples, and as he appoints the 12 apostles, what he's doing is he's refounding the Jewish narrative. A story which tells us that at one point, when those 12 tribes existed, as they did, and they were wandering around the desert following Moses, right? As they did that, at one point, they built a tabernacle. A tabernacle. It was sort of like a temporary version of the temple, right? And that tabernacle, that, that building of that tabernacle was an event that gathered up the arts, that gathered up the people and bound them to each other. Um, this is from uh, Exodus. Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from... No, that's not the right... Uh, yeah. And everyone... I'll, I'll read it from here. And everyone was willing, and whose heart moved them, came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the sacred garments, all who are willing, men and women alike... See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills. And he has given both him and Aholiab, son of Hishamach, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as engravers, designers, embroiderers in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen and weavers, all of them skilled workers and designers. So Jesus was refounding that story that gathered up the arts, that gathered up the people and bound them together. Later on in Jesus' ministry, we read that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. Um, this is actually a royal reference, and, and the reason is that it's been suggested, and I think this is right, that Peter, James, and John are representative of David's three mighty men. They formed an inner circle with David, and these guys formed an inner circle with Jesus. They're the ones who had the privilege of going up the mountain and seeing this transfiguration, right? So this, so this is a Davidic royal reference. So, so look at what Jesus is doing. At a point when Israel faced yet another crisis of existence, their survival as a people was uncertain, would they be deported, sent into yet another exile? Will the temple be demolished? Will Jerusalem be razed to the ground? Will they be scattered to the wind by imperial Rome? 
Uh, these are the questions at the forefront of a brutalized people. I mean, even, now just think of our situation, which is, which is relatively speaking, very, very tame, but there's, there's people seriously talking about, is America, is the American experiment over? Is, is, is there going to be a civil war? People are really talking about this. If, you, if just out of interest, I've talked to academics, British academics, who are talking about, is the American experiment over? That's a serious discussion that people are having. And people here talking about civil war. Okay, but, but this is relatively mild. Multiply that. This is way more intensified, right, in, in their situation. And so these are the questions at the forefront of, of, their, of their mind. And then Jesus appears, gathering the people into the old story. Moses, Mount Sinai, the 12 tribes, and King David. Here is Israel's story being told once again. But it's a fresh telling of that story which will still have the power to gather up the arts that will gather up the people for generations to come. Jesus says, come follow me. He says it to you and he says to me, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I think this, this, is, this is the opposite of the anemic, well, well, as long as I'm not hurting anyone, which I used to think was a harmless enough phrase. Actually, I used to think it was a good rule to live by. I did, but I've changed my mind. I don't think that anymore. I actually have come to the conclusion that I think it's a far nastier, far more unpleasant phrase than I ever imagined because essentially you keep on saying it, you keep on repeating it, and it has the power to separate us from each other, and we just keep on saying it, and what it does is it starts to drain life of meaning and drain life of purpose. Don't believe me? Say it ten times slowly at some point this week. Well, as long as I'm not hurting anyone, well, as long as you're not hurting anyone, that's really all that matters. Well, as long as I'm not hurting anyone, say it ten times slowly, and you'll feel it happening to you. The lifeblood draining out of you. <laughs> but when Jesus gathers his disciples up with the story, it's the opposite of you stay out of my way, I'll stay out of yours as long as I'm not hurting anyone. Imagine it. Jesus says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He goes up on the mount, he appoints the 12 and suddenly, unexpectedly, they find themselves drawn into the heart of Israel's story. And that's a story that moves in all directions. They find themselves answering to the story of Israel's ancient past. While at the same time, they're made responsible for moving that story forward into Israel's future. And at the same time, they're charged with the task of inviting their contemporaries, the world around them, into the story of God. And so what we find is that prostitutes and tax collectors, fishermen, people who didn't quite make the cut, existing under the oppression and brutality of Roman occupation. And Jesus says to all of them, this is your story. Now you own it. Oh, I thought the Pharisees, no, the Sadducees, no, the leaders, the King, King Herod, no, no, this is your story. And I'm giving it back to you. Now you own it. And they become monumental figures. Part of what might be called monumental history. What I mean is they, they, they changed the course of humanity and the very shape of your humanity and my humanity today. You know, I think of Jesus' followers who have inspired me the most, pe people who have become an example in so many ways for what I think of when I think of spiritual maturity. And I think of our friend Sasser, right? And, and I think of him, and he's not just concerned for his family and his tribe, but he's concerned for the entire nation of Myanmar. And, and now, of course, he's had to go into hiding, and, but he's, it's infectious because he's trained all of these people, right, to think this way. And so all the people who are giving medical services and training and education to people in the jungles in, in Myanmar, they are now all refugees, but as refugees, they are the ones helping the other refugees and serving them. And, look, and they're saying, I'm responsible for the flourishing of these other refugees. But you're a refugee yourself, yeah. But I, am, I bear the responsibility for these people. I, I'm going to contend for their good. 
Right? That does not come out of the mindset of, well, you stay out of your way, I'll stay out of mine, right? or whatever, <laughs> however that goes. Right? <laughs> you know. right? It doesn't come out of that mindset. Right? And, and then I think of, obviously, Celestin Musakura, again, another guy whose ministry started in the refugee camp, right? And, and, and then he doesn't, he's not just contending for the good of his own family and his own happy life, right? right? You think, of course he wants a happy life and his good of his own family, but, but it's so much more than that. He's contending for the good of eight different African nations as they work to prevent genocide and, and, and bring about reconciliation amongst warring tribes. That mindset does not come out of, well, you, you stay out of my, my way and I'll stay out of yours and, and as well as long as I'm not hurting anyone. That, not, that, none of that comes out of that. It's a completely different view. What these people have done is, is as a boy, a jungle boy in Myanmar, uh, is, is where Sasa was, and there's Celestin, who was a, a starving, hungry boy on the streets of Rwanda, right? They heard Jesus call, and they understood the scale of responsibility that Jesus was calling them to, and they have become monumental figures in our midst, and they are becoming part of monumental history that is literally steering the course of countless lives in a, in a whole, in a whole other, other direction. So Jesus calls us. He calls you. He calls me. And he says, you're responsible to the past. You're responsible to the future. You're responsible for those around you. This story, this story now, you, I want you to take responsibility for this in, in moving this, this forward. This is now yours. Thank you.